following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. What do some people say when you sneeze? What do they say? God bless you. Uh, Politicians who give speeches, end them with God bless you and God bless the United States of America. Well, what are they saying when they say bless? Uh, It typically reflects on health and wealth. You know, when you sneeze, I want to make sure that that doesn't turn to something bad. God bless you. Or when you're talking about politics and God bless you, it's like, oh, I hope economically that this means that you'll be strong and that this nation will be strong, etc. You know, and Proverbs does speak about health and wealth, blessings. And the prophets predicted that when Christ's kingdom come, it would be a kingdom and a reign of peace and prosperity, health and wealth. And as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, it's a time of blessing And it's a time, as the Lord, Matthew 4, it talks about him healing every disease and healing every affliction among the people. I mean, it's a time of health, a time of blessing that way. But now, as people are following Christ and they're beginning to hear him teach, they're wondering what he's going to do next. And as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you're not there already. That's your first gospel, the fifth chapter. In it, he is talking about blessings. Now, here's what's weird. He doesn't teach what they expect. They're expecting affirmation for their religiosity. They're expecting health and wealth and prosperity, and he doesn't teach that. As people are longing for happiness, Jesus actually says the root to that happiness is not what you think. It's not. It's not health and wealth. It is a deep, internal, life-transforming blessing. And as Christ utters each one of these beatitudes, or blessings in a sense, he actually almost sounds contradictory. Contradictory. So read aloud with me, if you would, verses 3 through 5, and then verses 6 through 7, all together. Now, verses 3 through 5 are found under point 1, 2, and 3, there in your intro on the, on the outline, and then the box. So see if you can stay with me here. But verse 3, let's start there, and I'll read out loud from the outline, so we're all reading together. Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who, according to Jesus, are the blessed? Well, it's not the wise. It's not the sensible, the wealthy, or the just. No. It's not even the agreeable. It's not even the funny or the intelligent, or the attractive, or the sensitive, or the super physically fit. Blessed means happy, fortunate, or favored. And he says, according to Jesus, the blessed, are you ready, are the poor, are the sad, like that child. Uh, They're lowly, they're hungry, and they're mistreated. Let me say it again. The blessed are not what you think. They're the poor, the sad, the lowly, the hungry, 
and the mistreated. Now, welcome to Christ's strange but perfect wisdom. Welcome to Christ's narrow gate theology, teaching that ultimately separates the crowds who want health and wealth in the here and now from the true disciples who are willing to pick up their cross and follow Christ. Big difference between those two. Welcome to what it means to be a blessed disciple of Jesus Christ. Poor, sad, lowly, hungry, mistreated, and blessed. We're in the midst of expositing the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new with us today, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's going to take us all the way to May to get to the end. But I want you to join the Lord as he is sitting on a slope overlooking the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It is sweet Southern California weather, no exaggeration there. It is incredibly perfect acoustics. Christ has his 12 around him and other disciples around them and a multitude and I want you today to join that multitude and hear what he's teaching. What it means to be a blessed disciple. What it means to be truly internally legitimately happy. Happy. There are people present who only want Christ to overthrow the Romans. There are others who want healing And they want food, health and wealth. But there are also most of them there who want desperately to be freed from the guilt of their sin. To be freed from the guilt of their sin. So Christ will go straight for their heart. They're all consumed with the externals. Not just the law of God, but all the applications of that. It's massive. They're under this weight of guilt, this mountain of guilt. And he's going to go right for their heart and expose the internal person so that they might cry out and ask for salvation. They might see just desperately how sinful they really are. So he's going to shock you and shock them out of their external religion. And he's going to talk about the internal reality as he moves people to deal with their hearts. Again, the only path to happiness is to have a born-again heart. So leave here today, and I want actually you to actually specifically, personally do this. As you have conversation on the patio, as you go throughout this week, ask each other, How is your heart today? Let's start dealing with the internals. Let's start dealing with what's the most important. And it is your heart before God. My concern in talking about this, and I think the Lord's concern, uh, if He were in this particular culture, would be those who want only $6 worth of God. Right? They just want a taste of God. Uh, When I go into Starbucks, and it's not very often, I get a chocolate almond milk shake and espresso. I want light ice. I want an extra scoop of powder. I want it to be decaf, and I want extra almond milk. Are you ready with that? And I want it. Are you ready? Feel the weight of this. My way, okay? I want it my way. That's how people approach God today. I want God my way. It's all about me and what I want. So we order him up, and we pick a church that fits that reality, and our ideas about faith. We want it to be reasonable, definitely convenient, and easy. And so therefore, as you do, you don't mind suffering a little inconvenience or a little conviction and showing a little commitment and offering a little giving and embracing a little fellowship and admitting a little sin so you can have a Savior from hell who ends up being really a little Savior. 
Not a great one. But if you submit, and he's changed your heart so that you actually want to obey, then it's not a God who you tell what to do, but he organizes your life. He orchestrates your friendships and who you hang with. He alters your free time. He does this because if you only want $6 worth of God, you're not really offering yourself to God in worship. Do you understand what worship is? Worship, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is you offering yourself. You are the gift. You're not holding anything back. You are the living sacrifice. That's true worship. Not what you sang, but what you offer. And it's yourself. You're giving yourself to Him. And that's not somebody who wants $6 worth of God. Those who know the real Christ, the Creator, the Lord, the King, the Master, the One who created the universe, the One who is the sovereign God who does as He pleases, only as He pleases, and always as He pleases, that God, you will pay anything, give anything, do anything in order to have Christ and His salvation. Can I hear an amen to that? There is a willingness. Is that the kind of heart you have? Our Lord is exposing hearts. And what we looked at last week was the first three shocking statements that Christ made. Look at it in your outline. Happiness comes from the awareness of your bankruptcy. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Bankruptcy. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Number two, happiness comes from the awareness of your deep grief over your own sin. Blessed are those, verse 4, who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourn over their sin. Number three, happiness comes from the awareness of your dependence on God. Verse five, blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the entire earth. And now today, we're going to look at verses six, seven, and eight, three more beatitudes. Look at beatitude number four in your outline. Number four, happiness comes from the awareness of your desperation to be righteous. You want to be righteous even when you're not. You want to be. And blessing in the form of satisfaction. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Now, understandably, in our particular culture, we have a hard time grasping this. Because not many of you in the room have been to the point of actual physical starvation. Not many of you in the room have been actually to the point that if you don't get a drink of water within the next six hours, you're going to die. But the Israelis in that culture, through drought, through famine, through an agrarian culture, they have experienced close to famine, close to not getting enough water. They know the desperation that Jesus is describing here. And they understand what it means to be hungry and desperate for water. And they understand the drive here. So verse 6, our Lord's describing to his listeners to be consumed, driven for righteousness. Being right and living right with God. Righteousness. Being right and living right with God. Moses, desperate to see God's glory. Paul, desperate to know Christ. David, a zeal for the house of God. Even the prodigal, starving, eating corn cobs, pig food, returns home to be with his father as a slave, if necessary, to return. God wants you to have an insatiable appetite. Don't know what's going on, but there you go. 
an intense longing, a keep-you-awake-at-night yearning. God wants an unsatisfied aching for righteousness. But what is that? Again, it's being made right and living right. It's, it's God is right. It's a character, an attribute of God. He does always what's right. He is right. And Christians are to pursue synonymous with salvation, descriptive of sanctification, this idea of pleasing God and seeking to live a way in which is pleasing to Him. And that only happens when you're made right so that you might live a way that's pleasing to Him. So here in chapter 5, verse 6, Matthew describes Christ's words in a very unique way. So I want to highlight this for you. Look at your Bibles. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, it actually is all righteousness. You could add the word all in there. That's in the original text. Christians are never satisfied because no matter how much righteousness they have or live out, they always can do more. There's more available to them. How much righteousness do you need? Well, Jesus totally blows them away in verse 20 when he says, For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses the most godly, the ones you think are the most religious, the scribes and the Pharisees, if it doesn't surpass them, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They must have dropped in their, their mouths open and gaped in their eyes when he made that statement. Plus, the Greek text includes the article here. So the literal rendering here is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for all the righteousness of God. To understand this, it helps you if you look at righteousness as perfection. It just helps you. It's not synonymous, but it's close. You need to be perfect to be made right with God. When you're talking to somebody who does not a Christian, you can tell them with great sincerity, you have to be perfect to get to heaven. Are you perfect? Are you perfect? No, oh, good. And when you're talking to a non-Christian, are they perfect? No. Very few non-Christians will tell you, I'm perfect. A six-year-old might, but no one else. And understand the issue that Jesus is getting at here. You've got to be perfect to get to heaven. You've got to be perfect to be God. And you never can be. So God has to make you perfect. You have to be perfect to be in heaven. You have to be. And you can't be. So what's he do? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is basically you can never do it. So God took upon your sin, upon himself. He basically took all the wrath against himself on the cross, rose from the dead, and now he has the ability, because he is perfect and perfectly righteous, to cover you with his perfect righteousness, making you perfect so you can stand in his presence, not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did. Are you getting it? You are muddy inside and out, and God washes you inside and out, and then he puts, you remember into those hotels that have the big fluffy white robes? You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't have it very often, Gene and I, but we look in the closet, we go, look, fluffy white robes, big thick ones, perfectly white. God covers you that, ooh, it feels so good, and you are now made righteous. You can stand in his presence. You're welcome. You are part of the wedding and you are dressed appropriately. And hungering and thirsting for righteousness begins with salvation and continues with sanctification. So now the one who's born again will never be totally satisfied with the righteousness you have. Uh, but you can be satisfied as you depend on the Lord to make you righteous in salvation. And then empower you to live righteous in this life. Because God 
wants to make you like the perfect righteous one. And who is the perfect righteous one? His name is Christ. God wants to make you like Christ. You know what the Holy Spirit wants? The one thing that he wants more than anything in your life. He's alive and working. He's indwelling you. What he wants is to make you like his son. That's what he wants. In every way. In every attitude. In every word. He wants to make you like his son. One thing over every other thing. He says that in Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become. The Spirit wants to conform you to the image of his son. I love Paul, his passion, and he does the same. This is what we want at FBC as well. Uh, This is my heart too, Galatians 4.19, my children in whom I again in labor. You know what he's saying? He said, I'm a man, but I am having birth pains here. This is the most painful thing you can go through. And I'm telling you, I'm going through this until Christ is what? Formed in you. I want you to become like Christ. Why? Because that's what the Spirit wants. We're doing exactly what he wants to do. J.C. Ryle put it this way, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who desire above all things to be entirely conformed to the mind of God. You're like Christ. You will be satisfied. They don't long to be rich or wealthy or learned, but long to be what? Holy. Christ gives you a longing to be righteous when you become a Christian. You're wondering about him as a non-Christian. Now you're longing to be like him as a Christian. And those who are saved want to live a godlike life. So badly, they're compared to a starving man who's looking for a slice of bread. Now, this is the convicting part. You're looking for, like a starving man would look for bread. You want to be that righteous. You want to be righteous like a dehydrated man who needs just a cup of water. And they're not satisfied until they know the righteous one and live Somewhat like the righteous one. They're the ones, verse 6, who shall be satisfied. Are you satisfied? Come on, are you satisfied? The stones saying, I can't get no, what? Satisfaction. But I try, but I try, but I try, shut up and turn to Christ. Because that's the only way you're going to ever be satisfied. Right? By means of Christ's redeeming work and transforming grace, God gives each one of you new internal appetites that He promised He will satisfy and only He can satisfy them. Those without Christ will try to find satisfaction in all kinds of stuff. What do they do? Materialistically, they want to have all the toys. Maybe you have a neighbor like that. They got the boat, the motor, and they got all the toys. Maybe it's travel. Maybe it's their family or their kids. or They want to get satisfied through uh, entertainment or sports or some form of you know, friendship. And, and yet, as critical as we can be of those who without Christ, because they can't help themselves, they're trying to fill that hole in their heart, you and I can get off track too, can we not? Sure we can. Uh, those with Christ can try to find satisfaction in a good church. Or, you know, in uh, uh, some nice fellowship. Or sometimes I meet people who find it in conferences. It's their spiritual high. Or they seek some sort of spiritual high emotionally. And every time they worship, they've got to be emotionally worn out instead of finding their satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ. The word satisfy means to be filled 
And it's used in the New Testament of feeding an animal until it can't eat anymore. And here it means to be completely satiated. You know, you're just totally full. And this seems paradoxical. Come on, look at the text. Look at this verse, verse 6. He's saying, God will satisfy me, but I will continue to hunger and thirst. Doesn't that sound a little paradoxical? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let me explain it to you. And men, you know this. Your wife probably fixes like one or two or three or four or five things that the moment you know she's doing it, you start to drool. Anybody with me? Please say yes. Okay. My wife does many things, but she makes an apple pie. And now that we're on diets, not very often. <laughs> but when she makes that pie, when I know that thing's gonna, about to be baked, and when it's baking, it's just... I mean, it's, you put a you know, little, little ball of ice cream on that sucker, and man, you eat, and you are satisfied. And honestly, I'll eat until I'm really satisfied. And you know what's amazing? Even after I'm really satisfied, here it is, I still want more. That's what he's talking about. Christ satisfies you, but you want more. And that's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's what it's like with Christ. Ecclesiastes 3.11, the Bible even talks about God put eternity in your hearts. Augustine said it this way, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Each of you have a, a hole in your soul, an emptiness that can't be filled by anyone but God himself. He's our creator. He made us. He understands us. He knows how he designed us. It wasn't some sort of evolutionary process. It is he designed you. He knows that we will not be satisfied until we stop rebelling from our you know, way to his purpose, to his path for us. We're never going to find satisfaction. We were made to be in relationship with him. And even as his children, we can go through times where we drift in our relationship with Christ and not be satisfied. That's why there's challenges throughout the, the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, in the Sermon on the Mount, later in the sermon, Jesus says it so well. But seek ye first his kingdom and his what? Righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So who are those who truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let me give you some, at least some idea three truths. They want God's will over their own will in everything. So you want God's will over your money. You want God's will over your relationships. Then your own will. You want what he wants. You want to do things his way. Number two, you're dissatisfied with yourself. You don't think much of yourself. You are a wretched Man, oh, wretched man that I am, a wretched woman that I am, you say and believe that. You're dissatisfied. You're not looking to yourself anymore to find the satisfaction. And three, you are not satisfied by anything more than Christ. Anything more than him. Now, let me help you look at this in a very basic way, and that's what this crowd is hearing. A starving man, a starving woman, are they going to be satisfied with a massage? Yes or no? No. Sexual intimacy, no. Friends, no. High-end Disney passes, no. A sports team, no. Massive inheritance, tons of money, no. Because a starving man is not going to be satisfied until he gets food. So that's the point here. The same thing with those who hunger after God and the Lord here. They will find the things of God to be their highest and sweetest satisfaction. They're not like the rich young ruler who wanted Christ plus his riches. You're just going to want Christ. 
So anyone who hungers here who only wants Christ, you don't justify, I want Christ plus my money. I want Christ plus my sin. I I want Christ plus my reputation. I just want Christ. Those without Christ are searching and hungry for happiness, but are starving. Never forget that. They're starving. They act happy, but they're starving. But when those with Christ hunger for holiness, they will be satisfied. Happiness belongs to the holy. Those who've been made holy, who then pursue holiness. That's the path. True happiness comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. Number two, number five, number five. Two for today, number five in our outline. Happiness comes from your life of mercy extended to the undeserving. To the undeserving. Mercy to the undeserving. Blessing comes in the form of God's mercy given to you. So look at verse 7. Simple verse. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. There's a two-fold pattern here. You get this, I hope. To get into God's kingdom, you need to seek for mercy. You need God's mercy extended to you. But once you're in God's kingdom, you'll show mercy. Let me say it again. When you want to be in God's kingdom, you're seeking mercy. But when you're in his kingdom and his family, you will show mercy. Jesus gives this as a test to find out where your heart's like. If you demonstrate mercy to others, you will receive mercy from God. This is to show what happens when you are truly saved. Christ is emphasizing and always emphasizes what's inside of you is what counts most That doesn't mean that God is not concerned about your behavior. He is, but it's your inside that produces and directs your behavior. Are you getting it? So Christ always goes for the heart because that's going to direct the behavior. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, a Christian is something before he does anything. Got to think about that for a minute. And think about this. He also said, Lloyd-Jones, we are not meant to control our Christianity, but our Christianity is rather meant to control us. We're driven by who we've become. We have new hearts, new desires. The Beatitudes are describing, please get this down. The Beatitudes are describing deep internal transformational changes that come from genuine salvation. The Israelis are listening to this. They're all about externals. They're, they're looking, comparing each other to one another. This is you know, what the rabbis expect, what the Pharisees expect. And Christ says, no, no, no. I'm not going to say good job. I'm going to say let's go for the heart, show you just how desperately sinful you are so you'll cry out for salvation. You'll turn to Christ in salvation. Christ always emphasizes the inner man. And so the Beatitudes are about that. And God is never interested in superficiality. The listening crowd were all externalists. They couldn't help themselves. It was the, the false leader and teachers had, had led them in that direction. And, and Christ is cracking through their fake faith. He's not interested in offerings or sacrifices, but he is interested in external obedience that actually comes from a heart that wants to, a transformed heart, real internal change. And mercy is one of those born-again expressions. Now, what is mercy? Write this definition down. Mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of another. Mercy is the loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of another. Grace is given to the undeserving, but mercy is given to the miserable. The miserable. 
Think about it. Mercy flows directly out of the previous Beatitudes. Let me build this for you, okay? Where, where does mercy come from? Come on, stay with me. Mercy comes from the Beatitudes. What do you mean? The person who knows he's spiritually bankrupt, verse 3, poor in spirit, the person will grieve over his pitiful condition, that's mourning, verse 4, then he'll submit his will and God, to God's will in all things. He's gentle, humble, meek, from verse 5. And he'll long to be godly and righteous before God, internally, externally, verse 6. He, then he will show mercy, get this, verse 7, to other undeserving people, since he knows he himself is also undeserving. Are you, this morning, undeserving? Yes, you are. And therefore, the more you are aware that you're undeserving, the more mercy you'll show to the undeserving. That's the heart of one who comes to Christ. That's the heart of someone whom Christ is in. Mercy means you're willing to get down on your hands and knees in order to help the undeserving who are as broken just like you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This Greek word here, mercy, is actually only used twice in the New Testament, this exact word, and it means to give help to the wretched, okay, to rescue the miserable. It is compassion in action. You're not merciful if you feel bad. You're merciful if you what? Act. You don't feel bad for your friend who's miserable and wretched. You go help him or her. You show it. Mercy has to be demonstrated. But Jesus is not saying, well, just be good and people will be good to you. He's not saying that. He's not suggesting, well, if people see you care, then they'll care for you. And he definitely, definitely is not saying, hey, be nice so you can earn your salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying something different, that your heart, when it's shown mercy, because you're so undeserving, you're so sinful, you cry out for it. When God expresses it to you, you're going to show it. Listen, he's talking to a crowd of people that don't understand mercy. In fact, get this, the majority of the culture surrounding the Jewish people and even it made its way into the Jewish culture to some degree, was that mercy was viewed as a weakness. It was not an esteemed quality in their culture. It was actually a mocked quality. When the Romans took over a city, when they conquered a city, like the Greeks before them, uh, the Greeks would come in and, and they would, you know, kill people. They would, you know, take over. They wouldn't destroy everything. They'd take people's slaves. When the Romans came in, and if you oppose them, they destroyed every man, woman, and child, butchered them, and they totally razed the city. Do you know what I mean? It's, everything's tipped over. Everything's destroyed. They destroyed everything. If you were a Roman and you didn't want your little daughter that was just born, you could kill it. If you were a Roman and your wife dissatisfied you, you could kill her. If you had a slave as a Roman, you could kill them without any consequence at all. The Roman people had very little mercy. It was a weakness. And Jesus said, no, this is a strength. This is what demonstrates me. Help for the undeserving. A reflection of his heart towards you and towards me. Christ healed the leper. Nobody healed lepers. He heals the leper. Nobody touched lepers. He touched lepers. He raised the son of grieving parents. Just so broken over the death of their son, he says, no, I... He raised that son from the dead. He even cared for the most despised person in all of Israel, the tax gatherer. He showed mercy to you 
and he showed mercy to me. And when I sit back and think of who I was before he saved me, he should not have saved me. Anybody with me on this? He should have condemned me to eternity in hell forever. I deserved all of it, and I got none of it. I was given mercy. Mercy is expressed in words. You ever given words by somebody that's merciful? I remember one time, a very, very desperate moment in my ministry, and I got a call, and it was from a merciful believer who spoke truth, expressed mercy. I hung up the phone and wept because his words were merciful. Uh, Mercy is shown in sacrificial gifts of money or supply. Mercy is proven with time given to those who can't give time back. Mercy is displayed in forgiveness for those who've wounded you, remembering that you will never forgive anybody as much as Christ has forgiven you. How will you do that? Well, you have to embrace how much mercy God has given to you. That's the key to showing mercy. You've got to write this down. How much mercy you show is the result of how much mercy you know. And if you don't get in touch with how merciful God has been to you, you will not show mercy. But when you are overwhelmed by the mercy that He has lavished with you, you will show mercy. Are you tracking with this? This is where it comes from. So, we live in a difficult time. There's so much growing injustice and suffering in the world And with modern media, and there's so much corruption of that, that where people are choosing certain lifestyles, etc. With with modern media, we're alerted to mercy and the need for help around the world. Even with believers, we hear about Maui or Nigel or people being persecuted in India. So for today, would you please just evaluate your heart over the mercy you need right around you in the here and now? Just now. Assume that you're living in the 1800s and you're not going to hear about Maui until six months later. And understand, are you manifesting mercy? Because if you demonstrate an I don't care heart to the needs around you, that's a bad spiritual sign. It may mean that you've been stifling it for a while. It may mean that you're not his child. If you don't care for people's eternal soul more than their physical suffering, then your mercy is misplaced. Because eternity is the issue, is it not? Uh, you could, you know, cause people to say, well, give up your prostitution and give up your homelessness, and they do that, but they don't come to Christ. That doesn't solve their problem. Are you with me on that? It doesn't, they are eternally condemned still. So you've got to care about their soul. Augustine even said it this way, if I weep for that body which uh, the soul has departed, How should I weep for that soul from which God has departed? Do you look on the lost with mercy or disdain? Also, do you take steps to show mercy guided by two things? Write it down. Mercy must be guided by God's word on one side. Never a violation of God's word. The other bank to this river of mercy needs to be wisdom and discernment. Wisdom and discernment. You need to mature in such a way that you begin to apply the word in a way that would really do the best good and express mercy. Coupons or gift cards to give away so you don't enable 
someone who's on drugs or to get drunken with, as you give them cash. Uh, discussions about the gospel and truth shared in the midst of mercy expressions. Finding out their background and what's going on in their life. That's a big win. Being prepared budgetarily. Being ready for it in order to act when Christians are in desperate need or in peril. Two questions. Have you received God's mercy to you as an undeserving broken sinner? Yes or no? Yes. Then are you showing His mercy to the undeserving around you? That's what Christ is saying here. It should somehow come out of you if it's truly in you. True happiness comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. Number six, the third of our Beatitudes for today. Number six, on the back side of your outline, happiness comes from those who've been made new in heart. New in heart, blessing in the form of intimacy with God. Verse eight, blessed, ready? I'm going to have you repeat it. Are the what? Pure in heart. For they shall see God. Some of you are writing, so you can't speak and write at the same time. I get that. But here it is, pure in heart. Now, the Lord's encouraging us. He's exhorting us. And what he's saying is that your inward character is more important than your conduct. Your attitudes are actually more evaluatory, more obvious, more important to him than your actions. When you evaluate anybody's life on the basis of their externals, their trials, their, how they dress, their circumstances, their difficulties with their kids, how much money they make or don't make, whether they say hi to you or they ghosted you along the way, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Early on, uh, many of you don't know this, but let's go way back in FBC as a brand new church. We made a decision in about our third year. We had high school students showing up with, you know, a, like a total grease hole t-shirt, t- uh, dirty jeans, no shoes. A lot of churches, they say, you can't come in here. We made the determination, you're sitting in the front row. Because we're not concerned about how they look. We're concerned about what? Their heart. We want to make sure they're right before God. Are you tracking with me on this? You've got to make decisions about wh- the way you look at people. And Christ looked at people concerning their heart. The word heart here is describing the condition of your inner spiritual life. You know, blessed are the pure in heart. This is who you are, your inner person, the real you, where you deliberate, decide, and direct your life. The heart is critically important to the Lord Jesus, so therefore it's got to be critically important to us. We need to make sure the heart's the issue. David even prayed, create in me a clean what? Heart, O God. What's a pure heart? The word pure... Look at heart now. We'll look at pure means three things. To cleanse from filth and iniquity. Number two, it means to remain unmixed with no foreign elements to it. It's not mixed. It's not like I love Jesus and I love this thing equally. No. There's a, a single-mindedness, and that's the number three, a single-minded focus, pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to have a fallen, evil, impure heart being pure by God. God changes it. The pure in heart is making the filthy heart clean. Now remember who's listening here. The first century Israelites are desperate economically, politically, and spiritually. They thought their Messiah should deliver them from Roman oppression, those non-merciful types. And Jesus really thought the bigger need was deliverance from Pharisee oppression. They were taught by the Pharisees, to obey God's law, all 613 commandments found in the Old Testament, 
That's not a bad goal, but it's something you can't do. It's something that is impossible for fallen humanity. But even worse for the first century Jews sitting on that slope above the Sea of Galilee listening to this sermon, they were intimidated into obeying thousands of applications to those laws, misinterpretations of those laws, which were designed by the rabbis for hundreds of years. There were thousands of rules. What to pick up, what not to pick up, how to act, what to do, what your chickens can do on the Sabbath. I mean, it was crazy. And they had to follow thousands of laws to be, are you ready, acceptable to God and to be acceptable to one another. So even if they are struggling with, nobody can do this, they can't rebel against that because they will then get kicked out of their community. It's really, they're under this oppression and the population longed for forgiveness. They are under a mountain of guilt, massively burdened by their own sinfulness, and they're listening with no sense of security. They have no confidence that they are right with God. They're living under a religious system they could not keep. So they are depressed and they are desperate on how to be made right before a holy God. And Jesus says, you got to be pure in heart to see God? Wow! Jesus says, you got to be 100% pure, no sin, no fault, no failure. You must be what? Perfect. That's what he says later on in the sermon, which really nails the whole argument in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, you need to be covered with his righteousness, right? He's got to take that stony, fallen heart out of you, and he's got to put a soft heart, a new heart, and dwelt with the Spirit of God, made new with a new nature. So Jesus even told Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. You've got to be a new person. You look the same on the outside, you've got to be new on the inside. So what Jesus is teaching you is you must trust in divine accomplishment. Again, You all know this, but I must affirm it to you. Christianity is different than every religion on planet Earth. Every religion on planet Earth is trying to work their way to heaven. Catholicism, Muslims, Hindus, work your way to heaven. J-dubs, all of them, only one faith on this planet says, you can't do it, and God had to do it for you. So he suffered and died in your place. He took you. He substituted for you. He rose from the dead so that your sin can fall on him and be crushed there as all of God's wrath is poured out on his son on your behalf and he can cover you with that white robe and change you internally. Are you getting it? That's how it happens. That's the gospel. That's the truth of what God did. So understand, God must pay the price for your sins. Even the little ones, all of them, he needs to transform your heart, purify your heart, so you will want to follow him, please him, and obey him from a made new pure heart. Listen, when your heart is made pure, you will want to live pure. Write it down. When your heart is made pure, you'll want to live pure, unless you're unrepentant, intentionally disobedient, or unwilling to submit to the Spirit's work. How do you know you're pure in heart? Well, there's a couple of clues in the New Testament. Let me give you some ideas. One would be the way you talk, right? Because the way you talk tells you what's in your heart. Are you with me? And sometimes you're not really excited about what comes out of your mouth, right? Please say yes. Amen. 
All right? So what's he saying? Matthew 15, 18. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. So what you talk about, what you focus on, what leads to behavior like evil thoughts or murders or adulteries, fornications, etc. Reveal your heart. The second way you know have your pure heart is you regularly desire to draw near to God. Draw near to the Lord. James 4.8, draw near to the Lord and he will draw near to you. Cleanse you hand, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You draw near to him, there's a purity that comes with that. The closer you are to him, the more you want to be pure. How do you know you've got a pure heart? You regularly, number three, seek to deal with idols in your heart. What is an idol in your heart? Anything that might usurp God from two things. From his rightful place as your Lord and Master. And his rightful place as your first love. That helps you. Now think about it. Anything that's an authority in your life, even your own desires, that's above Jesus Christ, that's usurping his authority. That's an idol. Anything that you have a deeper affection for than your first love is an idol. And what did Ezekiel the prophet warn us of? That he said, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Do you have an idol in your heart? You're challenging God's authority. You're, you know, challenging affections instead of his first loveness, so to speak. There's a hymn called, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God. And one verse describes this desire for a pure heart and no idols. It does it this way, quote, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol might be, help tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Are you getting it? Jesus adds, the blessing of pursuing a pure heart is verse 8. Now watch. For they shall see what? God. Come on, look at verse 8. They shall see what? God. See God. The tense and the voice of the verb see, see God, is a reflexive, continual action. You go, what does that mean, Chris? Okay, I'll tell you. You can write this down. Verse 8 means this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, ready, continually see God for themselves. That's what it means. That's exactly the translation that should be in the English text. Continually see God for themselves. So, do you know what happens when your heart is purified at salvation? Do you know what happens? You live in the presence of God. You don't see Him physically, but you see Him spiritually. You realize He's here. He's real. He's present. He's working. He's alive. You see Him. Come on, Christian. Moses saw the Lord. Job said, but now my eyes see Him. Christian, you are now blessed to see God in creation. Come on, who of you who are a believer have not been to some place where you sat back and went, wow, God is big. Anybody? God is good. God is creative. It's incredible. And the more you understand true science, the way God makes things work, you're going to say wow a whole lot more than you do. Because even your body, your cells, the workings of everything around us is a big, gigantic wow. You see God. You see God in your circumstances. Bomb threat. A bomb threat at a conference that's focusing on the sovereignty of God. How appropriate is that? 
right? Uh, your trials. You begin to see that God's working, even though it's painful, even though it's a struggle. You see, I know God's going to work in this, and I, I want to see him glorify himself. He's done that before. I want to see him. And you begin to see how he does in your ministry, how he works in people's lives and changes them and does his work his way, and you just celebrate it on dark days, on light days, on easy days. You know he's at work, alive, loving you. He's all wise. His thoughts toward you are more than the sea of the, uh, the sand of the seashore. You are blown away. Do you see God in all of life? Then purify your heart. Be that rare Christian who continually longing for God's presence and pursuing God's purity. For when that's your passion, you'll be pure in heart. Because true happiness comes to anyone who depends on Christ for everything. Take this home. Take this home before we run out of time. You cannot purify your own heart. You cannot purify your own heart. Uh, Proverbs asks this profound question, chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? Anyone? No one. You're not just stained with sin, you're saturated with it. It's, sin is not something merely that you do, it's who you are since the fall of mankind. We want to get angry, we want to be selfish, we love being proud, we desire lust. Grow to the place where you recognize, I can't wash myself, deliver myself from sin, that your sin will destroy you, send you to hell, and your only hope is for God to rescue you from its penalty, rescue you from its power, and we thank him for that, and one day he's going to rescue us from the presence of sin. But none of you can say, I can clean myself up, correct? Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Can the leopard change his spots? No. So you who, you know, think you can do good, who are accustomed to evil, you can't change either. Another B, rejoice in God's mercy and your positional righteousness. As a part of the human race, you were corrupted when Adam chose to sin. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.19, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made what? Righteous. Because of the sacrificial perfect death and life of the Son of God, taking the punishment you deserved on the cross, being the one who bore all of God's eternal wrath against you for your sin upon himself on the cross as your substitute in your place because he loved you and had mercy towards you, you've been made righteous. Right now, you could walk out, the truck comes by, bam, you're gone, and you're going right into his presence because you've got the right robe on. Right? Can anything change that? Yes or no? No. All of the eternal condemnation you deserve was fallen on Christ. When he said, it is finished, your punishment was finished. You need to rejoice that Christ died for you. And because he made you positionally righteous, you want to be passionately to pursue practical righteousness. Because he made you positionally righteous, you're going to want to be righteous with your anger, your selfishness, your pride. You're going to say, not only have I been made right, Lord, I want to live right. And let her see. Plead for God's mercy. It says in Ephesians 2.4, but God rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. It's overwhelming. He could forgive and embrace you and wash you. And because of his sacral death, death and resurrection from the dead, uh, because of the, his son, it can be given to you as a gift. You don't earn it. You claim it. You submit to it. 
It's not a tag you wear, it's a life you live. It's not a get out of hell card. It's you pursue his will with a lifestyle because he's rich in mercy. Won't you respond to the gracious invitation of Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life and no one will come to the Father except through him and that means no one. No other faith, no other religion will get you to heaven. It doesn't matter how good you are, sincere you are, religious you are, you must believe that Christ is God who died for your sins and rose to a new life. You must submit to his lordship by following his word, the Bible. That'll be a part of a newborn again heart and you must trust that when you do, you will want to live for him. So, When you leave here today, it's not in your notes, I want to make sure that this is a part of our culture from this day forth and evermore. When you get to the patio, start each day asking yourself. Finish each conversation with a believer. Even ask those who don't know Christ, how is your what? Heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy to us. We pray that you would be exalted above all, that you would draw those who don't know you to yourself, and Father, that you would cause us to want to live pure, to live righteous, to live in a way where our hearts are being purified, even though they've been made pure, that we live that out. And we pray, Father, that we might truly honor you as our God, as our Master, as our Lord, as our first love, and we'll give you all the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.